So, it's good to see you. (laughs) In every genuine sense of the word, it's good to see all of you. Thank you for worshiping with us this morning. Uh, If I were to say the name John Bunyan, who would know what I'm talking about? John Bunyan. Okay, Bunyan was an English writer and preacher in the mid-1600s near Bedford in England. And what had happened was in 1644, the state had passed some legislation that said there is no meeting together for worship or preaching apart from the state-authorized churches. And you would be thrown in prison if you were leading this kind of thing. And of course, the reason they did this was because they wanted to control information. The state wanted to control, the government wanted to control what was being said, who was being said. So, of course, John Bunyan, in obedience to God's word, wouldn't stop. And he kept gathering together and getting people together to hear the word of God because he knew how important that was. And as a result, he's thrown into the Bedfordshire prison around 1644. And while he's in prison, he begins to work on what would become his greatest work, at least in many people's opinion, which would be the Pilgrim's Progress. Anybody read Pilgrim's Progress? Good. Whoever hasn't should get a copy. Pilgrim's Progress is a story of Christian, a man as he journeys through this world on his way to the celestial city, on his way to heaven. And on his way, on his journey, he is almost always faced with two decisions. Stay on the path that God has laid out, that the, that the book, he's following this book, which is the Bible. Stay on the path that the book tells you or be led astray. Over and over again, he is faced with these kinds of decisions. If he follows the path he is supposed to, everything's good. If he's enticed away from that path, there are often dire consequences. Now, I don't have any doubt in my mind that John Bunyan knew Psalm 1. Because the entirety of Pilgrim's Progress is basically telling us over and over and over again what Psalm 1 tells us. That there are two ways to live, two paths to walk, the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. And each of those paths has a very different outcome, a very different end. Today, we begin our summer series in the Psalms. And we, of course, are going to start with Psalm 1. Psalm 1 lays out some of the most clear, practical advice for living the Christian life. And it mostly has to do with this reality that there are only two ways to go. You are walking in obedience to Christ or you are walking in sin. Psalm 1 lays this out for us. So if you haven't done so, let's all turn now to the book of Psalms. book of Psalms is right about in the middle of your Bible. And if you open up there and navigate to the very beginning, you will see Psalm 1. So let's read this psalm together and we'll ask for the Lord's blessing on our time. Psalms chapter 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree 
planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Let's pray. Father, this morning we come to be instructed by your word. Even if this is a familiar passage to many of us, God, teach us this morning. I pray for strength in the preaching and I pray for strength in the hearing. God, would the truth of your word stand. It matters not what I say. It matters infinitely what your word says. So please, come. Be our teacher this morning. Encourage us. Convict us. Strengthen us through your word. And do all of these things through the wonderful and amazing ministry of your Holy Spirit. Father, we give you thanks for the work that you've done in our body over these past weeks. We know that it's your hand that's at work, and we would give you praise for that. And now we ask, God, that you be glorified in our service. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. I don't remember if I've mentioned this to you, but my plan in preaching is at least over the summers, to preach through the Psalms over the next 15 or so years. So as we go through our normal preaching schedule, we're in the book of Ephesians right now, we're going to take a break during the summer from that, because in the summer it's just the way it is. A lot of people are gone a little bit more. There's more stuff going on. And I don't want us to miss some of the things that are you, you have to see it in context. In a book like Ephesians, if you miss three weeks and come back, you're going to be lost, right? So as we work through the school year, basically, we're going to follow our examples of consecutive exposition through books like that. When we come to the summer, we are going to break and preach through the Psalms. The Psalms are more individual. If you miss a couple, you're not, I mean, you're missing the word, but you know what I mean. It's not like we missed a part of this consecutive exposition. So that's the plan, and one of the reasons I mention this now is because of the very first word in our text today. The psalmist opens Psalm 1, blessed is the man. Now the word blessed is going to show up 53 times in this book. Sometimes in relation to God as the blessed God, sometimes in relation to us or the person who is blessed because of such and such. And so I want to start this morning by defining what this is so that when we come to it, both now and at later times, we know what it is and we don't have to go back and kind of keep redefining it. So how would you define the word blessed? It's used multiple times in the Bible, in the Beatitudes this morning that we read. Sometimes we use words and we, if we're forced to define them, it gets tricky. We kind of know what it means, but if you're really forced to put a definition to something, it can be a little bit more challenging. So what I want to do today is rather than just looking at, you know, giving you an original language definition or something like this, which are helpful things, but I want to look at two other passages really quickly in the Psalms because I think it's really important to see how is something used in its immediate context. 
Okay? We, can, we can look at some other things and go outside, but it's always best to see in the context how is the word used. So what I want to do is look at two different psalms. You can turn here or just write them down and look later. The first one would be Psalm 21. Psalm 21, verses 5 and 6. And again, we're trying to figure out what is meant in the psalms when the word blessed is used in regard to people or to man. Okay? So let's try to answer that question. Psalm 21, verse 5. His glory is great through your salvation. Splendor and majesty you bestow on him. For you make him most blessed forever. You make him glad with the joy of your presence. Okay, so we have gladness. We have joy in relation to this blessedness. Okay, that's helpful. Let's look next at Psalm 32, just a couple over. Psalm chapter 32, verse 1, which is, of course, quoted in the New Testament. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Hmm. What's he talking about here in Psalm 32? Salvation, right? He's saying that when our sins are forgiven, when your conscience is cleansed, when you're finally released from that weight of sin and guilt that weighs you down, you are blessed. So what does it mean? What would be a good working definition for us? Here's what I think. In the Psalms and in the Bible, when we see it's the word blessed, to be blessed is to be in a state of joy, happiness, and contentment that comes from the knowledge of what God has done. I'll say that again. To be blessed is to be in a state of joy, happiness, and contentment that comes from the knowledge of what God has done. This is how I'm going to be thinking about this. Of course, if we were to go to the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament, the word would be makarios, which just means happy. (laughs) So to be blessed is to be happy and in a state of peace. That's how we're going to think about this as we go through. So let's come back to our text in Psalm 1. And we're going to see three things come out of the text. And I hope you see them as well this morning. We're going to see the blessed man's delight. Number two, the blessed man's stability. And number three, and most sobering, the consequence of the wicked. So let's start by looking at verses one and two again. And we'll see our first point, the blessed man's delight. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Verse 1 is telling us of the blessedness of the man who does not do these three things. Actually, it's three sets of three, but we're just going to call it three. Now, you should be able to see that there is a progression here as you look at the text. We have walks, stands, sits. Okay? And I think this is a progression from bad to worse. Let me tell you what I mean. Let's, let's identify what each one of these things are. 
The psalm presents to us the way of the righteous, the way of the wicked. So as we are walking this path of life, just like Christian in Pilgrim's Progress, as we are walking in the path of obedience, as we are following after God, there will be people, there will be circumstances that promote wickedness. Things that tempt us to veer off the path that we are walking on and come and check out what they're doing. Walking in the way of the wicked. You all know this. Now, wicked, we don't use the word wicked and, you know, very much, although it's a very apt word. But to walk in the way of the wicked is to follow the course of the world, to follow the things that the world considers to be normal. The Bible is saying, blessed is the one who does not do that. Stay on the path that God has laid out for us in his word, and God will provide blessing for that. Next is the one who stands in the way of sinners. This person has stopped walking on the path. He is not continuing to move and has stopped to consider the sin. He isn't moving. He's not getting away from it. He has stopped in the way of sinners. Maybe there's validity to what they're saying. I am kind of walking on a really restrictive path. Maybe there's a better way. And he stops and starts to think about and listen to what's going on outside of the path that he is supposed to be on. Now after he has stopped and stood in this way, the next step in the progression from bad to worse is to sit with scoffers. This sitting we should think of as an identifying with. And of course, scoffers are people who, (laughs) you're a Christian? (laughs) Weakling? Yep. Scoffers are people who mock the Bible, who mock religion, true religion. And the Bible is telling us It's not just that this man is passing by. It's not just that he stopped to consider or stopped to see what is going on. He is at full buy-in level and has sat down and taken up residence, basically, with those who would mock the word of our God. Psalm 1 tells us that the blessed man is the one who does not do these things. He does not follow this progression. He stays on the path that God has laid out for us. Blessed is the man who does not walk this way. Rather, what does he do? Well, before we get there, I just want to put a little parenthesis, and I want to say something to the young people who are here. And I mean middle, high school, even young college age you are at a very moldable point. You are at a point where there are many voices telling you, here's what your identity should be. Here's how you should look. Here's how you should act. Don't listen to your parents. Do whatever you want to do. There are so many voices, and I want to encourage you, and I think Psalm 1 encourages you, be very careful who you listen to. Be very careful who you let influence you in your life. There are people 
believe it or not, who would love to drag you down with them into a path of consequence that you do not want to go down. That is not the best that God has for you. Do not fall in with the wicked who would encourage you towards this. Don't fall in with sinners who try to entice you to sin with them. And don't become a scoffer, one who thinks that Christianity is foolishness. I don't need God. I have everything that I need. Why would I go to church on Sunday morning? I could be out golfing or some other foolishness. Sorry, golfers. But it is so important. I mean, all of our life this is so important, but especially when we're young. God has given you parents. He's given you a church family. Rely on that, young people. Rely upon that. Trust in Jesus. Don't trust in yourself or your own abilities. I know it's hard, but the way that God has for us in his word is a path not of wickedness, not of continual sin, but of righteousness and joy and peace. Close parenthesis. So in order to be blessed, we are not to find delight in these things, in these walking, standing, sitting, but what does verse 2 say? His delight, the blessed man's delight, is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. The blessed man takes delight in the law of the Lord. Now, what do you normally think of when you see the word law? Well, we think of something you get in trouble for breaking, right? A law is in place to whatever. There's a million reasons why there's laws. We get that, right? We, we usually think of laws in terms of, I better not go against that because it's been established, it's enforced, um, all these kinds of things. But I think when we get to Psalm 1, uh, a, maybe a better translation here or at least a, a good way to think about this would to be, The law of the Lord is his instruction to us, okay? His instruction to us. And I want to illustrate what I mean here by having you turn to Psalm 19. Just a couple chapters over, Psalm 19. And I want to kind of argue that the law of the Lord is the overarch it's Torah, right? That's the word, it's the, it's the law, it's what God has revealed. And I want to argue that it includes all of these other things. And I think we see this in Psalm 19. It's a good description of what the law of the Lord is. Look with me starting at verse 7, or just listen. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Okay, so I think verse 7, the law of the Lord, I think this is the overarching category. This is the thing that includes everything else that's going to follow. So, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous all together. So, the law of the Lord, his instruction is perfect. And it includes 
testimonies and his precepts and his commandments and all of that stuff falls inside the category of the law of the Lord. Back to Psalm 1. When we are told that we ought to take delight in the law of the Lord, that the blessed man delights in this law, I think that it means everything that God has told us. Our delight, our enjoyment, our pleasure ought to come from knowing the revealed will of God through his word. I mean, just think, if you look back through the history of redemption and you see how God has acted, how he has worked, how manifold are your works, O Lord, the psalmist says. And we look back and we see that from Egypt and the freedom of the children of Israel, and all the way through the promised land, and all the way through the kings, and we see all the different ways that God has acted, and preserved, and done miracles. How could you not delight in a God who acts this way, and has promised to be disposed towards you in the same way because of the work of Jesus Christ? When we read the word of God, the law of the Lord, we ought to delight that such a God would love us. The blessed man delights in the law of the Lord. When we read the Bible, do we find joy? Or do we find indifference? Does the word of God excite you when you open? Do you realize the privilege that it is for us to open this anytime we want? Or do we occasionally read because your conscience kicked in and you, ah, right, I, I'm a Christian, I have to read the Bible. Just take a quick assessment and see how do you respond to the word of God. Psalm 1 tells us that the way to stay on the path of the righteous, the way to keep ourselves from stumbling is not only to read the word of God, but to take great delight in the word of God. You can just read it like any other book. Just words on a page. But through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, we can delight in what the Word tells us. Isn't that something? So how does one come to delight in the law of the Lord? Well, first of all, you have to know it. (laughs) You cannot delight in something you do not know. I mean, imagine if there's a bunch of guys together and their husbands talking, and like, yeah, I take great delight in my wife. I haven't seen her for two years, but I really take great delight in her. Like, that would make sense. You have to know something to take delight in it. Okay? And so I think the way that we delight is to know it. And that's why I think verse 2 says, His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on His law He meditates. Day and night. Now this does not mean that you need to quit your job and read the Bible 16 hours a day. What it does mean is that you should take every opportunity you can to get the word of God in you. If you want to delight in the Bible, if you want to delight in what God has told us, then you need to know it. You need to read it. You need to prioritize your time in God's Word. And then once you get it in your mind, let it ruminate, let it bounce around. Meditate on what you've read. 
Scripture memorization is a wonderful way to do this. And you say, well, I'm too old. I, my mind isn't sharp. I can't memorize it. I don't have the time to do that. Little pieces. Start, start very small. You could memorize verse 1 of Psalm 1. You could. It's, you could do that. And then you have something in your mind. Do you know how the Holy Spirit works? Through the Word of God. When you are suffering, when your mind is so foggy you can't form a thought, how does the Holy Spirit encourage us in that point? He is not ex nihilo making new information. He takes the Word of God that we have read, that we have taken in, and He encourages us and reminds us with that. It is so important that we have the Word of God in us. Meditate on it. Delight in it. Take it in, whatever you have to do. Do you have a commute to your job? Throw an audio Bible on. Spend a lot of time in the car? It's a great chance to listen to the Word of God. You got 20 minutes before you go to bed? Maybe instead of watching television, you should open your Bible. Whatever you have to do, get the Word of God in your life. There is no other chance you have. There is nothing else that will sustain you, brothers and sisters. I tell you this because I love you. Get the Word in you. And chew on it. The more we read the Scriptures, or read books about the Scriptures, which are also helpful, we will know and delight in the law of the Lord. And this is the path to becoming the blessed man of Psalm 1. Let's keep moving here. Number two, the blessed man's stability. Number two, the blessed man's stability. Let's look at verses three and four. He, this is the blessed man, is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season. And its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like the chaff that the wind drives away. Now the analogy in verse 3 flows out of verse 2. If you delight in the law of the Lord, if you meditate on his law, what happens? Or what should we expect to happen? What's the outcome of a life lived in the pursuit of God through his word? You will become like a tree planted by streams of water. If you've done any gardening, planting, that kind of a thing, you know the importance of water. (laughs) I mean, you can buy the most robust green plant that already has blossoms on it and stick it in the ground, but if that plant does not get water, it will die indefinitely. Water is absolutely crucial to growth. The images here in verses 3 are of stability and productivity. Okay, I see stability and productivity, both of which should be evidenced in the life of the Christian. Now, stability doesn't mean that there will never be storms or that there will never be drought. It means that when the storms come and when the drought comes... You will not perish because you have spent your life, <clears throat> excuse me, delighting in and meditating on the Word of God. And you have roots. 
that go down into this water, which is the word of God. At least I think we can call it the word of God. I mean, I just mentioned this, but what's going to sustain you? I don't know what's coming for you. Something's coming. It's just the way life is in a sinful world. What's going to sustain you through these times coming, hard times? Your own resolve, that'll be out the window. Your own strength, nope. The thing that will sustain us through anything is the fact that we are rooted in the word of God. You see some of these trees, even around here, that are so big that two of us couldn't get our arms around them. That tree's not blowing over. Why? Its roots go down. And the psalmist wants us to be that kind of person. The kind of person that is stable, rooted, grounded, unable to be blown over. When we come back to Ephesians in the fall, Lord willing, we're picking up in chapter 4, and the text is in verse 14 that, that Paul is telling us that God has given all these gifts to the church and these things so that we would no longer be children tossed about by every wind and wave of doctrine. Well, how do we become stable people who aren't just blown off course by everything? It's by doing Psalm 1, <laughs> by delighting in the Word of God, by sending our roots down deep. That's how God sustains us. It isn't some hocus-pocus formula. It's just steady, faithful reading of the Word of God and taking it into your life. If you spend your life trying to be a Psalm 1 person who delights in the Word of God, you will find that when you come up against the storms, when you come up against the suffering, you will stand. Because God is making you stand through his word. Now not only is there stability for this blessed man, but there is productivity. Verse 3, <clears throat> he's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season. Its leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. Just like the well-watered tree that will bear fruit when it's supposed to, so the blessed man who walks in the path of righteousness will bear fruit for the kingdom of God. His life will be marked by effective gospel ministry. Now, effective is different than successful. We got that? Effective is different than successful. They can overlap. But they are not synonymous. And oftentimes we don't see the effectiveness of our ministry. And we start to think that we're failing or not successful. That's a worldly mentality. The person who gives their life to living according to God's standard will be effective. It just might not always look like success. Now verse 3 says that in whatever he does, he prospers. Hmm. 
What are we to make of that word? Is this some kind of equation to be solved where if we plug in the right information, this will work? Like, <clears throat> if I do the Psalm 1 thing, if I meditate on the Word of God and delight in it, then no matter what, everything I do is going to turn up roses. Is that what this is saying? I don't think so. For one thing, that would stand in harsh contrast to many other texts of Scripture. But let's define what he's talking about. One of the reasons that this is difficult, or can be difficult, with this word, is that so often in the Bible, prosperity is designated to the wicked. (laughs) Especially in the Psalms. We read that prosperity is something that's being bemoaned by the righteous because the wicked are kind of flaunting it in front of them. Listen to just a couple texts. Psalm 37, verse 7. Be still before the Lord. Wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Huh. Here, the one who prospers is the one who works evil. Malachi chapter 3, verse 15. And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test. Well, these passages don't paint a very enticing picture of prosperity, do they? So, what are we to make of this? Well, I think in Psalm 1, there is a different kind of prosperity being spoken of. Okay, just like in verse 1, where the blessedness is a spiritual blessedness, not a physical, you're going to get more stuff kind of a blessedness. I think the same thing's going on in verse 3. It, it should not surprise us when we follow God's plan, when we walk in obedience and say no to sin and pursue a life of holiness, it should not be shocking when God extends his blessing to that life. Willem van Germeren, in his excellent commentary on the psalm, says this, The prosperity of the righteous does not necessarily extend to the assurance of great wealth, but primarily it extends to God's blessing on their words and their works. Isn't that a good way to think about that? This is not talking about the fact that if you put your hand to something, it's going to turn to gold. It is talking about the fact that a life lived in obedience to God will experience the faithfulness of God. This is what it means for God to be a covenant God. He has promised blessing for obedience and cursing for disobedience. Why would we be surprised when people are blessed for following a life that honors the Lord? Now, we must never presume upon God as if he owes us something. And we must remember that a relationship with God is not (coughs) transactional. Okay, God isn't like the vending machine where you put your money in, you punch the button, and you get exactly what you want. That is not how God works. And that is not what this text is saying at all. Rather, we live our lives in obedience to what God has told us to do and trust that he will do what is right and good and true, which he always does 100% of the time. 
So do not read parts like this in the scriptures and assume that if you just do the right thing, everything is just going to turn around in your life. That's not reality. The reality is that a life lived in faithful obedience to Jesus Christ will be blessed. We just can't always say what that means. But it seldom is what we think it means, isn't it? That's the way that God works. Now in contrast to the stable, established tree of the blessed man, the wicked are like dust or chaff. You guys ever eat peanuts and there's that little kind of papery thing around the peanut that gets stuck in your teeth, right? That's kind of like what chaff is. So chaff is the covering on the wheat, and they would thresh the wheat. They would beat it on the floor so that this covering would separate, and the heavier grain would be left. And they would leave it on the threshing floor, and the wind would blow the chaff away, leaving just the good part of the the head of the grain that was now free of this nasty chaff that would have got stuck in their teeth. So because this chaff is so light, The wind does the work. It is literally so inconsequential that it takes no human effort to get rid of it. The wind just blows it. By comparison, the Bible says the wicked are like this chaff. So we get the picture of the righteous being firm and established and solid and immovable. And then you have dust by comparison. They are not rooted, they are not established, they are easily blown, easily moved. And I think one of the points of having this in the text is to remind us, you don't want to be that. (laughs) Do you? I mean, do you want to be blown around all the time and constantly moving and getting knocked off your feet and frustrated? No. Live your life for the Lord. Invest yourself in his word, and he will establish you. Now let's look quickly at the third point. The consequence of wickedness. The consequence of wickedness. Verses 5 and 6. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. These are, without a doubt, the most sobering verses in this chapter. They tell us the future of both the righteous and the wicked, the consequence of each life lived, each path walked. The wicked, we are told, will not stand in the judgment. This means they will have no protection from the wrath of God as it is poured out on the day his righteous judgment is revealed, Paul tells us in Romans 2. There is coming a day when God will judge the living and the dead. And as those who have put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we need not fear that day because 
Christ is our righteousness. We do not stand before God on our own strength, in our own power, claiming some kind of righteousness of our own. Jesus Christ, in the great exchange, took our sin upon himself on the cross and gave us his righteousness so that when the wrath of God comes, we can say, no, Jesus Christ is my righteousness and I stand because of him, not so with the wicked There is no protection, there is no covering, there is no hiding from the wrath of God against their sin. And all this text should motivate us to share the gospel with everyone. We don't want to see people under the wrath of God in that way. And if we know that Jesus Christ is the only hope, then that's our job. It's to carry that message. The wicked will not stand in the judgment. Part of this judgment is that sinners, we see, are cut off from the congregation or the assembly of the righteous. These are those who have relationship with God, who enjoy His presence in a good relationship with Him and His church and His people and all these things. The sinners will not be in that congregation. This is, of course, I mean, I, like I said, it's sobering to me because of the seriousness and the permanence of what's being talked about. Now, maybe people don't want to be in the congregation of the righteous. Maybe they think that, you know, maybe they're in the scoffing camp and they think, well, why would I want to be in that? I mean, the wicked don't want anything to do with God. The scary thing is, is someday they'll get their way unless they turn from their sin, confess and come to faith in Jesus. The last distinction here drawn in Psalm 1 is that the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. You see what's being said here? To know the Lord and be known by Him is life. The Lord knows the way of the righteous. But if you do not know the Lord, you'll perish. What a sobering reminder that there are only two paths to follow. The way of the righteous, which leads to eternal life, and the way of the wicked, which leads to eternal death. Now, I said that I think this text should motivate us and I want to offer us an encouragement as we close our time together this morning. And my encouragement to us is this, and I already mentioned this, but I want us to use this psalm evangelistically. I want us to use this psalm evangelistically as we talk with our family and our friends who do not know Christ. Tell them what this says. Tell them about Psalm 1. Tell them about how the scripture tells us there's there's only two paths to walk. You are either walking in obedience to Jesus or you are walking in obedience to the world which ultimately ends up in death. Tell them how God will bless the man who turns away from worldly advice but rather takes delight in what God has told us through his word. Use this to warn them 
that if they do not turn from their sin, it is not just a matter of poof, kind of disappearing. There is judgment. (coughs) And the only way to be saved from that is to accept the free gift of salvation through Jesus Christ and be clothed with his righteousness. Remind them of the hope to be found in Jesus. I think that's what this psalm is doing. It's painting this picture of these two outcomes, life and death, to remind us life is serious, but there's hope in Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this text. Thank you for these words. Thank you for the reminder, Lord, that there are not many ways to go through this life, but there are only two. We walk in obedience to you or we walk in obedience to the world and God give us the strength to walk in obedience to you. You are our king. You are our conqueror. You have conquered sin and death on our behalf and we want to follow in obedience to you, God. Please give us strength to do that. I pray that our church would be a Psalm 1 church that we would meditate on your word, that we would take delight in your word, and that you would be pleased, Lord, to extend the blessing of your kindness to us. Thank you so much for the Psalms. Thank you for the encouragement that they've been to so many of us. And as we look forward now this summer to going through them, Lord, I pray that you'd be glorified and honored. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.